Okay, let's talk about your basic versions of the Bible. <clears throat> I have a vague memory of saying this before, which may just be when I teach it in a regular class. So uh, if you come across it in some other recording, <laughs> um, it's probably pretty much the same stuff. So um, we start with, we're going to talk about printed texts that are available. And the um, Hebrew scriptures that you find available online, easy, and through stores is called the Masoretic text. The Masoretes worked in the, I think, 9th and 10th centuries. To fix the text of the Hebrew scriptures, um, again, um, they were probably because they're rather conservative, even though the codex was available by that time, probably still dealing with uh, scrolls. But at any rate, they wanted to fix the text so that it would be the same in all uh, copies. And so uh, they do things like counting up the numbers of the, um, the, the numbers of letters in each book and in the uh, uh, scriptures as a whole. And they put in notes and also, um, to make it easier to read, they add back in uh, vowels, um, which are points, the little tiny points that you see around the letters. Uh, the big letters are all consonants. Hebrew is a consonantal uh, alphabet, which means it only had consonants, but they wanted to add in vowels, but the text is sacred, so you can't take a big letter and stick it in there because that would be altering the sacred text. So they developed this uh, rather complicated pointing system that allowed the big letters to stay exactly as they were and just have the points around them to guide you not only to pronunciation but to uh, what the word means because um, a word could be pointed as a vowel, I mean as a verb or as a, a noun sometimes and uh, tenses can get quite um, complicated in Hebrew. So. Um, it was not only putting in vowels, but also interpreting as well what was going on. Um, the version we used when I was at the seminary was the uh, Biblia Hebraica Stuttgartensia, which is the scholar's version of the Masoretic text, which was already a scholar's version. And... Um, you know, Hebrew was always a second language to me, so I couldn't just read it like I do English. But um, there are times you want to go back to Hebrew to find out what it was saying in the original, and we'll see why as we go along. Now, the Greek version of, oh, and the uh, abbreviation for Masoretic text is MT, abbreviation for Biblica Hebraica Stuttgartensia's BHS. All right, next we get to the Septuagint, which is a word uh, which basically means 70 in Greek, or it's derived from that. And according to tradition, um, it took 70 scholars 70 days to write 70 copies of the Septuagint, and they were all exactly the same. So that what they're saying is this translation is inspired. And the fact is that the, um, the Septuagint is about a thousand years older 
than the Masoretic text. So even though it's Greek, um, it's an older Greek than the Masoretic text um, um, is. Although we do have copies like from the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are equally as old as the Septuagint or even older, uh, and sometimes they are pretty close to the MT, sometimes they are not. Now, what's critical about the Septuagint, I think maybe we talked about this with the canon. Uh, that may be when I was talking about this. Um, so the Septuagint has works in it uh, that were never originally, as far as we know, in Hebrew. So that um, later on as uh, Christians grabbed the Septuagint and used it for their uh, own scriptures, which we now call the New Testament, um, the Jews pulled back from it and reverted back to using the Masoretic text. And I think probably their Torahs are unpointed, so the text may be the same, but I don't think they have the vowels. Um, so when you learn your uh, Greek and are studying the Greek New Testament, all those scripture quotes are from the Septuagint. Uh, the one exception I can think of now, there are a couple, Maranatha, uh, that think that's uh, Aramaic, and uh, Eli, Eli, Lama, Sabachthani, that's Hebrew, that Jesus spoke on the cross. Um, but other than that, they quote the Greek New Testament, I mean, the Greek, the Septuagint, uh, in the Greek New Testament, which brings us to the Greek New Testament. Um, and there are two major versions of this that are available. Um, there's the Textus Receptus, the received text, um, as, gosh, we'll have to talk about textual criticism sometime, um, but it was like an ancient game of telephone. You're taking a, a written document, copying it down to the best of your ability, but that's only going to take you so far. Uh, in the early centuries, the church was incredibly poor, and so the uh, text wasn't um, the, the copied by professional scribes, and it tends to be a, a bit more haphazard and have kind of uh, mistakes beginner's mistakes in them. Um, and even once you get a super professional, uh, high-quality class of scholars working, they introduce their own kind of mistakes by correcting the bad grammar of Mark and Paul and the other people who will, uh, you know, write Greek maybe as a second language, um, and they'll come along and smooth it out. To, and. Uh, um, I'm working on my own anthology online, and one thing we have to do is when we come across some grammatical mistake, decide, well, was that intentional? Um, was that just the way the word was spelled back then? Uh, is that something that was a printer's error or somehow got transmitted wrong and we need to correct it? So textual criticism becomes a big thing. Anyway, the Textus Receptus is the text that was circulating when printers got started. And so um, it had not been carefully maintained in the early centuries and then it had just been passed down uh, generation to generation and so had a lot of mistake. This is the other end of the telephone. And as time went along, scholars found much more ancient versions of 
much more ancient copies of the New Testament and of the Bible as a whole that had not um, been known at the time the printing press was invented. Um, so they started putting these side by side and comparing them and trying to figure out the original text that's called collating. And at the end of this process, uh, we have the critical editions. Uh, these are both the same text, but they have different footnote systems and uh, print styles and stuff. One is the Nestle Aland, and every few years they come out with, the, and they were, on, I think, on the 26th edition when I was in the seminary. And the United Bible Society version, which is much more readable and has a much more usually user-friendly uh, apparatus for um, comparing mistakes. But as my professor said, the Nestle Aland is a marvel of information. Like, just cram it in there, and uh, if you know what you're doing, um, it goes into a lot more detail. Anyway, TR for Texas Receptus, N-A-A, uh, uh, Nestle Aland, and UBS, United Bible Society. And uh, the Nestle Aland and United Bible Society are the scholarly editions of the Greek New Testament, where the Textus Receptus is just the one they had when uh, they started printing. Okay. Um, now, probably the most important book in Western European history is the Vulgate, which is the translation of uh, the Christian Bible from Hebrew from Aramaic, from Greek, into Latin. And this is abbreviated VG for Vulgate. Vulgate is from the Latin word vulgus, which means common or ordinary or vulgar. Um, so by vulgar, it means the common language of ordinary people. And when we talk about something being vulgar, uh, we mean it's the common language of ordinary people. And so uh, that's how those two words are related. Um, but why is this so important? Well, after the collapse of Rome, uh, the one flickering light of civilization that remained going through the period that we popularly call the Dark Ages was the church. And what tied the church together? Uh, they had a common book that people with all these different languages coming into the church and becoming monks and priests had to learn, and that language was Latin. And so you could travel from one part of Europe all the way across uh, Western Europe, and in any town you went to, there would be at least one or two people, priests, who could speak Latin. And so that became the common language of Europe that kind of held it together. So that even thing like uh, Sir Thomas More writing Utopia during the time of uh, Henry VIII writes it in Latin. A lot of important books continued to be written in Latin because it was considered the universal language. And because you had the church and because you had scholars who could read Latin, they read other stuff in Latin and copied it and preserved it. And so what bit of civilization got preserved through the Middle Ages uh, got preserved 
kind of piggybacking on the Vulgate. All right, now we could spend a whole period on the English translations of the Bible. Um, how much time do I want to give to that? Let's just talk about a few of these. Um, for a long time, it was very difficult to publish Bibles in English because the Catholic Church was worried about what would happen if the Bible wound up in the hands of the common ordinary folk and uh, they could interpret any way they saw fit. It would lead to endless schism and uh, splits within the church. And uh, as it turns out, they were right. Uh, my dad had a book of American denominations when I was growing up, and it was a good 400 pages long, and each denomination only got about a couple of pages. Um, so, yeah, uh, reading the Bible yourself and interpreting it for yourself leads to a lot of disagreement over stuff. Um, so if we go back, I think um, this was before Gutenberg. It was a uh, therefore handwritten translation from the 1380s, the John Wycliffe version. Translated from the Vulgate, which was his only source available. Um, 44 years after he died, the Pope on, uh, ordered that his bones be dug up, crushed, and scattered in the river as punishment for uh, having tr made the Bible available in the popular language. Skipping ahead, uh, Gutenberg invented the press in the uh, 1450s, pretty soon the Gutenberg Bible, which was, let's see, I believe it was a Vulgate, if I recall correctly, uh, was available. And so print Bibles started circulating and made Bibles still expensive, but much more available than they had been. Um, A later version after the printing press came along was the Tyndall version, William Tyndall. He was a part of the Reformation. Uh, so the Reformation is started by this time. He prints the New Testament in English. Um, he has uh, been called the architect of the English language because so many of his words and phrases got later brought over into uh, other editions of the Bible and from there into English in general. Okay, the Coverdale Bible. Uh, he continued the process of uh, translation which Tyndall had started and in 1535 printed the first complete Bible in the English language. Um, now this was using uh, Luther's German text and Latin as his sources rather than going back to the original Greek and Hebrew. So those weren't really widely available yet. Um, okay, so having spent the early part of his life uh, backing up the uh, Roman Catholic Church after 
Henry VIII didn't get the divorce he wanted. He split off and uh, kind of um, kept the church rather Catholic, but now they start to be friendly to Protestant ideas. And so uh, he has tells Thomas Cranmer, the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, that he wants an English Bible that's authorized by the church and the state. Um, and so he, Cranmer hires Miles Coverdale, um, who is the driving force behind the Great Bible. Um, and it was called that because it was huge, a large pulpit folio uh, that measured over 14 inches tall. Um, as the Reformation went along, it splintered the way the Catholic Church had predicted that such things would happen. Um, Luther had his breakthrough, and there were other major theologians, one of whom was John Calvin, who was uh, centered at Geneva, Switzerland. And he probably had the most systematic theology out there, very systematic, um, tending toward rigidity, and uh, we know about the predestination and stuff. And we will actually talk about um, Calvinism later in the quarter when we uh, study the ways that Bible helps us to interpret later literature. So um, if you're interested in the points of Calvinism, check out the uh, Goodman Brown lecture down the road. I believe it's the last day, if I keep it, but I think I'll keep it. Um, so a group of uh, rather extreme Puritans gathered uh, over there, English speakers, and they published the Geneva Bible. Uh, and this was called the Breaches Bible, Breaches, because uh, According to this translation, when God uh, threw um, Adam and Eve out of the garden, uh, he made them britches. <laughs> um, so, um, so this was the very Protestant Bible, and you can download this thing uh, from archive.org. Um, it... Um, it has notes at the head. It's a study Bible. If you've bought a study Bible, uh, this was pioneered by the Geneva. So each book will have an introduction to the book at the top. Um, each uh, chapter will have notes. There'll be notes on the outside margin and notes on the inside margin. Um, so, and, and these are very hostile toward Catholicism and really toward English uh, religion as well, the Church of England. Um, and so to compete with the Geneva Bible, um, we'll skip a bunch of these, but um, uh, James VI of Scotland became James I of England when Elizabeth died and Protestants uh, approached him. and asked for a new translation. And James was uh, willing to go along with this because it would give him a chance to have a Bible 
that didn't call kings tyrants all the time. <laughs> kings kind of got tired of uh, being called the tyrants by the uh, the Geneva Bible. So um, this one would have a a theology which was more acceptable and you know not as overt um, so that whatever your theology and that was kind of one of the goals of the Church of England was uh, to have a broad tent and have as many people be willing to be Church of England as possible so that you did not have a lot of divisions so you don't want a divisive Bible if you don't want to have a divisive church um, now King James was busy um, being king, doing stuff that kings do. Um, so he did not actually do the translation himself. Instead, he appointed a committee. Um, this committee may have had Shakespeare in it. Um, Shakespeare was retired from the theater, but still very much alive. and. Um, still able to turn a phrase. Um, it it um, had scholars, but it also had men of the world, people who had been educated in Latin and Greek, um, but who uh, were going out and living real lives, uh, not just cloistered away somewhere. about 50 scholars um, they would go into Bibles that were already printed and then um, make their notes in and around the text and uh, we had a uh, Dr. Jacobs in fact he still teaches here sometimes he's semi-retired um, and one thing he would do was study the King James translation and he's actually gone to England to these uh, great libraries and asked them to unstitch their, their very rare Bibles so that he could look at the margins where people had written in them um, as part of the King James translation process. Um, now, um, let's talk about the style, the, uh, the linguistic style, the, the, the way that things roll off the tongue when... Uh, you read the English of uh, the King James Version. Uh, we're using it as our primary text because it is the literary translation of the English Bible. Um, mostly because of its immense popularity for 400 years. Uh, you can find a Geneva Bible, especially nowadays with the internet. Um, it's not the version your grandma and great-grandma and great-great-granddaddy and all the others have been using uh, since the 1600s. That was the King James. And so this is the Bible that casts the shadow in English. Um, when you compare it to modern translations, it is better literature because modern translations aren't translated to be good literature, um, which was kind of what they wanted for the King James. They wanted it to be beautiful um, when read. Uh, and nowadays the goal is for it to be readable by a third grader, which gives you, you know, the Bible as uh, green eggs and ham. Uh, 
that it's very understandable, which certainly has a, a point, but it's not nearly as beautiful as the King James. Um, and what we have today is once again a, um, an embarrassment of riches. You have dozens and dozens of translations of the Bible into English so that um, you never um, so that um, what was I saying um, so that no one of those will gain ascendance so uh, when you memorize the Bible uh, nobody else will know if it's memorized or not because they have a different Bible. Uh, it sounds different from what they learned. So to the degree we have a dominant English translation of the Bible, it's still the King James Version because all these others are just competing against each other. Um, but mostly because we're using that because it is the one that's quoted in all the other stuff. So when you read Moby Dick, you know that Melville and Ahab have spent many, many hours uh, reading the Bible, and they speak the language uh, with that inflection, um, the these and the thous. And, um, it's still very Shakespearean, very uh, biblical in the King James Version kind of way. Um, now, one reason people have argued that uh, the King James is such a good literate uh, literature is because the Hebrew behind it was good literature. So I've uh, included uh, Genesis 1.1 uh, in several of our translations. We start first before the translation. It was the Hebrew. Birashit uh, bara Elohim. Uh, I think I got that backward. Bereshit bara Elohim In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, now, the most remarkable thing about this is that it's backward. Um, the Hebrew is printed from right to left, not left to right. Um, but Hebrew, for all that it looks so very different, uh, is in some ways much more like English than either Greek or Hebrew, I mean, or, or uh, Latin, because it's built by word order. You have first in the sentence is the verb, then the subject, then the object. And to be even handier, they usually mark the object with uh, the letters um, eth, um, alpha, tau. Um, so, um, in the beginning created God the heavens and the earth. Uh, and eth marks that this is the heaven, so that you know it's the direct object, which is great when you are a beginning Hebrew student. Um, the one major difference in the way word order works is that uh, Hebrew tends to be Yoda speak. In the beginning created God, the heavens and the earth. 
Um, that's the way Yoda talks. He, uh, uh, he is his Hebrew word order. Uh, verb, subject, object. Verb, subject, object. But once, you know, it takes about a day or two to get used to that because we're already used to that word order and we can kind of understand it even when we're not used to it. Um, now, when we move to the Greek, this is... Um, this is from the Septuagint. Now, when we read the Greek Septuagint, it's this in arche epoiesin hathias ton uranon kai tain gain. In beginning made God the heaven and the earth. Um, now, Greek and Latin are different from English because they are inflected languages. That means they have, instead of word order, they have word endings that tell you how they fit. So, in our case, uh, that's the object of a preposition, hathios, the OS, omicron, sigma on the end, says that is the subject, the omicron, noon. Uh, new on the end of uranon um, means that it's the direct object. So that's how you tell. So you can literally cut these words apart, throw them into a hat, pull them out in any random order, and it'll mean the same thing. Now you do need to keep your articles together with the uh, nouns they modify along with prepositions, but you know, in our case, you could just cut that apart, throw it in the hat, Epoiesin, in the hat. Hathias, in the hat. Ton uranon, in the hat. Kaitengain, in the hat. And you take it out in any order you like, and it will mean exactly the same thing. So with all this freedom, all this liberty, all this ability to reward it any way they liked, what did they do? Well, as you can see, they stuck with the exact same word order as the Hebrew. Why a um, religions tend to be conservative and hold over uh, the traditional wherever possible, but b uh, the Hebrew was already good uh, prose, so why mess with it? So for those two reasons, um, you want to stick with the original Hebrew. So, um, with all this broad variety of what they could do, what they did do was stick with the same word order. Now, let's look down at the Latin. In principio creavit Deus caelum et terum. Uh, now, the first thing to note about this is, hey, you can already almost read Latin. Um, in principio, in the beginning, created, created, Deus, God, Kylum, well, that's probably sky, Terra, we already know that's earth. Um, so many words have come into English from Latin, mostly under the influence of the Vulgate, um, that we can almost read Latin, which is pretty cool. Um, so, 
uh, lobby to get Latin back at Tech. <laughs> um, we do teach it from time to time, so I'm, and I'm the teacher, so I would love to teach it um, uh, soon. Anyway, once again, the uh, people doing the uh, Vulgate had the choice of any word order they wanted, but they stuck with the Hebrew. Uh, probably partly out of devotional reasons, but also aesthetic. It's actually really good prose. Um, and some people have argued that English never had good prose. We had good poetry for a long time, but never had good prose until we had widely available uh, English, bi um, English language Bibles, which stuck really closely to the Hebrew style. And so we come to the King James Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. So the only change they made, they put God back in the proper English word order of subject, verb, object. And they made heaven singular, which the Vulgate and the Septuagint also do. Uh, whereas the Hebrew is plural, and they for some reason make it singular. But other than that, it's pretty much the Hebrew style. And we find that throughout the Bible, um, that especially the King James, where possible, follows the Hebrew style. Uh, this is one of the theories of translation. If you go for a word-for-word -word translation, which they kind of do here, uh, do you do meaning for meaning so that you don't worry about word order or even word choice? You just try to get the meaning in there somehow um, and make it as understandable as possible. And therefore, you change a lot of stuff to accommodate the modern English reader. And King James is good English. Uh, it's also good Hebrew. Um, what was it? The, Rev the American Standard Version. Uh, was made available in the late 1800s. And it is a very literal, very wooden translation. So much so that one of the earlier reviewers said, good Greek, bad English. Which you would think would put it out of business. But when me and my fellow students were taking Greek and Hebrew, we all went out and bought our version of the original American Standard Version because it was very good Greek and very good Hebrew. And when you're trying to learn a new language and you need a crutch, uh, you want one that's as close to the original as possible.